This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. So we've been on the I-70 Strangler, as opposed to the I-70 Killer, for two episodes now. And uh, I realized that I've had like these cases and some cases around it kind of on the True Crime Access calendar. Like it was on in 2023, and now obviously it's 2024, and we're back on this. And I don't know if I ever specified to you why they were here, but... It actually, like I put them on there in 2022 and they, there's sort of constantly developments in certain cases in Indiana. And one of the things that had happened that like got them back on in 2023 is I thought they were going to be announcing like a suspect in this case and like some other stuff. I had been following because of like different cases we've covered over the years I have these search alerts set where when something happens to hunters in remote locations, I get like alerts that there's an article and I go and read it. And in January of 2023, I was drawn back to this area. So there's this incident on January the 6th. It's a Friday. It's in southwestern Union County. And the Indiana DNR, so the Department of Natural Resources, they issue this really strange press release. They're looking for four people and they don't, at first they didn't say what they were looking for them for. And they tell you absolutely nothing in the initial press release, but they followed it pretty quickly with like a, uh, a press release that kind of explained it. But again, it's really short. And I saw that tri city Herald, that's how I get like linked into it as I have like this search thing um, set up and it takes me to a tri city Herald article and it's by a guy named Mitchell Willits. And it's uh, January 9th is when he was writing about it online. And all the article says is trespassing hunters shoot caretaker who told them to leave property. And then it says a group of hunters is accused of shooting the caretaker of a piece of private land in Indiana after the person confronted them about trespassing. The incident happened in the morning on Friday, January the 6th, according to Indiana Department of Natural Resources, the caretaker approached four hunters who were hunting on the private property without permission, and the conversation escalated into violence, and the caretaker gets shot. And the hunters are not in custody. The officials are asking that the public help identify them with absolutely no information, and anyone with information about the shooting is asked to contact Indiana Conservation Office dispatch and provides the number, and then they give an 800 number that you can call. So, you know, this is like 80 miles from downtown Indianapolis. And like it even says at the bottom, officials refuse to comment on the condition of the caretaker. And I was like, what happened to this guy? Because hunting is like a strange thing for me. I don't, I learned how to hunt very early, but I don't actually hunt. Um, I know how to do it, but I have like a, I, have sort of a problem with like killing animals and even like I could do it if like it was my only resort for food. But anyways, this, this popped up and I got to like, I, I spent a solid week trying to get more information, trying to develop a source, but it was just so many odd things happening in this area of Indiana. That's like right outside of areas I'm familiar with. So that's how we get back on the I-70 Strangler case. So there's a caretaker and four people wanted. Right. Okay. And, and did that ever resolve? No. Well, did the caretaker die? I don't know. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. Well, I'm telling you how we end up back on the, I-70 Strangler is because in the course of looking for that, like there's all these little articles, but they kept taking me back deeper and deeper into these unsolved cases in Indiana. 
And the I-70 Strangler case has like sort of stuck in my head for a long time. And there's, there are a lot of blogs out there where you can go and you can read a little bit about unsolved cases in Indiana. What interests me in all of this is sort of where we're going on this episode. So we talked about all the victims and we talked about like everything that sort of happened there. One thing that I'll just reiterate here is Dennis Brodsky. He comes up, he's the guy that's not really related, but might be related when they carve these victims into two separate groups. So we end up with the technical I-70 strangler official victims. Those are the 12 names of the people that we were last talking about. But we have four men who had been included in that who sort of get moved off the list, and that's Gary Davis, John Roach, uh, Daniel McNeedy, and then Dennis Brodsky. Dennis Brodsky is one of the first times, if you go back and read through articles and stuff, where I felt like it was a pretty credible law enforcement source. I don't know that now, but I felt like it at the time saying this might be a ritual death, but you know, his death certificates online. And if you look it up, it says that he had a secondary condition of acute ethanol poisoning, or basically like he was drunk and then an undetermined cause of death. But Somehow he gets sort of pulled from this list and the FBI, like specifically where we left off the FBI, they joined into this sort of loose knit task force that was going on. And the profilers there end up suggesting that there were two different men responsible for these two series of murders and the Indianapolis star on June 12th, 1983 They ran an article where it really gets in deep. It's around page 12. Uh, So this is a Sunday paper for Indianapolis, by the way. Um, They, like, put these guys in a separate category and basically profile that there are two dudes killing gay men in Indianapolis. During this time. And it ran. So this runs for a while. Like, like the series of these crimes don't stop when this article is out. You know, it's got, it's got a pretty healthy list at the time this article pops up. Um, I think in that article, there were eight guys. I know Petrie was in there. Davis was in there. Brodsky was in there. And I didn't know if you had ever seen this, uh, like with, with, researching what was going on here, but I wanted to just read a chunk of this article. I don't have a name on this. Like I don't have a name on the copy that I have. It's like, it's very old actually, but it picks up from a page one article and it says, while there have been more than 35 unnatural deaths linked in the gay community in the past decade, police have focused in on the eight recent cases. And I thought it was interesting that they bring up uh, the 35 number. It says there are some predominant patterns in addition to associations uh, within the homosexual community. All were found with some article of clothing missing. All lacked so-called defensive wounds, indicating that there had been little struggle or that each was prevented from fighting his attacker, either from being bound or potentially being incapacitated chemically, maybe. In uh, every other pattern, there's a variation. So seven victims are white, one's black. Um, and this is limited to Petrie Davis, Brodsky, Taylor, Baker, Roach, McNeeby, and Riley. Of the eight Indianapolis men, only two were found in Marion County. One of those was in his bedroom at home, which you had pointed out in a previous episode. The others were left along rural roadsides. Three victims were strangled, two were stabbed, The other three have an indeterminate cause of death or an undetermined classification. So police have been turning to the shadowy clues left by the minds of the killers. The preliminary FBI profiles obtained by the Indianapolis Star were developed by studying the deaths of three of the victims. This is really old, but it's an interesting, this is kind of a time machine here. 
So they focus on a devoidly baker. This is their description of him. A decent, athletic, likable 14-year-old baker uh, from West 29th Street in the 600 block was found in October 1982 in a southeastern Hamilton County ditch, and he had been strangled. The night before, he had ridden his bicycle to the downtown area without much money, and he called home at 10.30 p.m. to tell his parents he would be late because he was going to a movie. They wondered how he got enough money. The article states this like it's fact, so I'm just going to state what it's saying here. He earned it by, quote, hustling, which is engaging in male prostitution, according to sources. Except he was a child, so. And they say that there was an ex, an older ex-con who was arrested and had admitted paying the boy $20 after taking him to a Southside motel. Uh, the man was later cleared of the murder, but he was charged with child molesting, by the way. That's good. Um, so the name surfaced of another Marion County man who may have also picked up Baker. That man was questioned about the murders, but refused to talk to grand jury investigators. So that's how they sum up Baker's case. Then they talk about John Roach. So John Roach was 21. He was last seen around December 20th of 1982. He was planning to spend Christmas with his girlfriend, but he was upset about having no money to buy Christmas gifts. So not enough time had passed for him to sell his blood again at a donor clinic. So basically, he was within the, I think it would have been four weeks at the time, maybe. He's described as cheerful and energetic, and he was caught up in the pace of the holiday season. He leaves his downtown apartment at 9.30 a.m. That's on December 20th. But on December 29th, his body gets found by hunters in a Putnam County field. He's been stabbed 20 to 25 times in his abdomen, his upper chest, and his throat. And it says in this article that he had hustled the streets for less than six months, according to friends. And he did it only for the money because he has a girlfriend. So then we've got Daniel McNeeby. He's 22. He's from Lyons Avenue. Says he was a handsome, honest, and hardworking young man. His temporary labor job kept him strong, good physical shape. He, uh, though he lived with his older brother, he was capable of taking care of himself. At a young age, however, he had developed a taste for alcohol that had to be satisfied no matter what the condition of his wallet. He was arrested just one week before he was last seen May 7th, leaving a Westside bar with a man who had offered him a ride. A Hendricks County farmer discovered his body two days later, buried in a shallow but conspicuous grave. He was stabbed about 30 times. The FBI experts spent a day at Marion County Public Safety Training Academy. So this is like the place where all the cops go to learn. Uh, but the FBI had the files on these victims. They were given only facts about how each body was found, the age, race, and what had killed them. Based on information from FBI studies and other murders, the agents told local detectives that they could expect Baker's killer to be 45 years old, overweight from living a comfortable middle-class life afforded by a good, solid job, outwardly normal in all appearances. So this is killing the youngest victim. They said he's likely to be married, but that it would just be for show. There would be little, if any, intimacy between him and his wife. They'd probably sleep in separate beds. Although fairly intelligent, the killer has difficulty expressing thoughts. Perhaps he's ashamed of them because he may have an unnatural sexual longing for children, but not necessarily a female child, but a young male, such as Baker. This is all according to this profile. He knows that he needs help, but he's ashamed of himself, too ashamed to seek it, and he hides within. He's considered turning himself over to police as a way to get help. A confession may reveal that he didn't want to kill Baker, but things got out of hand. The killer probably realized Baker was at an age where he confided in his friends. If Baker did, that would have ruined the killer's life. Since the murder, the killer has had sex with other young males and has more child pornography hidden away. So we've got one profile they're developing, and they specifically say that in this article that it attaches over to Baker. Um, do we have a cause of death on Baker? Baker had been strangled. Strangled, okay. So so Baker is is the youngest victim he's found strangled and he's found in a Hamilton County ditch. 
Do you feel like there's some um, inconsistencies with what you just read uh, from the profile that was sort of come up with based on the circumstances they were given? While Baker was 14 years old, um, I think that there could be a power dynamic there, but I don't think that it bleeds over into the attraction to children the way that it's kind of the way I take it to be being alluded to there. Yeah. So, uh, well, okay. I don't feel like this person was a pedophile. The void Baker is 14. Correct. That's like, I've seen pictures of him. I don't get the impression that he looked unnaturally young. Right. He was post, or he was in the middle of puberty, probably. Right. So this is the thing that, like, I think people would be weirded out by, but we talked about it before. That's technically a habibophile, which is different than a pedophile. So a pedophile likes prepubescent or prepuberty bodies and images. I don't think this guy is, like, okay. And the reason I'm hemming and hawing on this is because technically someone who's 14 to 18, yeah, that's child sexual abuse material in terms of like statutes. Right. But I feel like the reason I even say anything at all is because I feel like it substantially changes the dynamic that you're talking about with regard to like the motivation for ultimately the murder, right? Yes. And I actually feel like in my mind, I think this profile is a mistake. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's completely wrong, but as you said, I feel like that, like looking at this, you're, you're being a little limiting on the Baker murder. Um, I do like, I will say that strangling someone is way different than stabbing, which is what they get to here in a second. But Do you find it odd that the article, it states that a 47-year-old ex-con, the one who was charged with molesting him, he refused to talk to the grand jury about it? Yeah, that's, it sounds like they have someone sitting there that matches what the FBI is saying, but, you know, we get into the splitting hairs here. I just find that it's interesting that that was put out there because of, they segment him off, or however you want to say it, Right. To begin with. And and I don't know why, because he wasn't the first. Right. Maybe because he was the youngest. I think it's I think it's the youngest. And I honestly think they're struggling a good deal here with him being the, black. Yeah. The race okay. issue. The, and, so the FBI at this time is still pretty focused in on the idea that there's not a lot of like crossing racial lines and it's like they have some misconceptions that would still spill over here. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's how, I think that's one of the ways that the void Baker gets singled out. But I also think that part of this, when you're developing investigative tools like this, because that's really all this is, it's an investigatory tool. That's what the profile is. It's not going to be like some kind of, it's not really pseudoscience because they're not holding it up to be anything but like, here's some guidelines to look for. I think they single Devoid Baker out because of his youth, his race. And from this pile that we're looking at, they're going to single him out from the rest of the pile because he's strangled. Uh, And they don't really touch on Brodsky here. Uh, so they have a second profile that's pulled from for this article. And I don't have a lot more of this article that I'm going to use. I'm just going to use a little bit more. So it says that profile is completely unlike that of the second killer, the one who is believed to have slain McNeve and Roach. They met their death at the hands of a white male in his late 20s or early 30s. He would be a common laborer. The man doesn't mind getting dirty and may even like it as a macho symbol in the world because inwardly he worries about his attraction to other men. So looking like a tough guy is important to him as a laborer. He has developed a strong muscular upper body being with other tough guys is important to him. He's probably a heavy beer drinker. And according to them, he probably frequents redneck bars. 
I think there's a number of problems with this profile more than the other profile. And then it goes into, but he is a, he is in a homosexual panic. He, he's always afraid that someone will think he's homosexual. He's ready to defend himself at the slightest mention that he might, he may be one. As a result, he has an outward hatred for gays and he kills what he hates the most. They're getting this from the rage killing of like that many stab wounds, by the way. That's what they're going with. Indeed, in both murders, investigators were quick to see the viciousness with which he slashed his bound victims. And I think that's an important distinction. It's something that's mentioned here. I pulled this because it's not really mentioned elsewhere. Bound victims. So, you know, when it's over, he then tries to hide it by he, by covering the victims up. Um, and he even had a shovel that he used in the second murder because he, like with Daniel McNeevy, Daniel is actually buried in Hendricks County. Not, not a deep grave, but like he's like dug a hole, put the body in a hole and covered it back up. Um, so it's a very shallow grave. Uh, and it, at the end of this portion of the article, the the writer asked how confident are detectives of these profiles? They regard them as an investigatory tool, like I was saying. If anything, the profiles increase their desire to solve the cases to see how closely they will match the profiles, which is weird. But, okay, all of that having been said, they seem to sort of think they're dealing with two serial killers. And that's interesting to me. For several different reasons. Oh, I did find the name. Scott Miley wrote this, by the way, for the Indianapolis Star. I was looking for his name, and I was able to find it at the end there. They have some initial suspects. Now, one of the first suspects, we were just mentioning him. He's a 47-year-old guy named Duncan Patterson. He's a Florida native. And in the fall of 1982, he was arrested in Indianapolis on charges of statutory rape against young boys. Shortly after his arrest, a friend of DeVoid Baker claimed that DeVoid had gotten into Patterson's van. And Patterson admitted that this was true, and he had paid Baker $20 for oral sex. They had gotten a hotel room. But he denied killing the boy. He claimed that he had taken Baker after sex to the Indianapolis Central Library dropped him off, and saw him get into another van. Curious what you think about that, like in like terms of, like, so he gets out of Duncan Patterson's van, the void does. He goes to the library, and Duncan Patterson watches him long enough to see him get in the van with another man. So he's the guy that got charged with molesting him? Yeah. He gets yeah. charged with statutory rape. I feel like, uh, well, I feel like that was the wrong charge. I'm just saying, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, I feel like it's it's convenient that he watched him get out and get into somebody else's van. Yeah, so he says he sees that happen. But then his testimony is corroborated by a witness who is unidentified here. Okay, so this witness had seen Baker leave the van and go up the library steps to talk to a man he apparently knew. And that witness had a little bit different story, but the witness said that DeVoid was seen getting into this older man's car. So they go about assessing Duncan Patterson as a suspect, and they put him through a polygraph test. He agrees to it, and then he passes it. He does get convicted on charges of child molestation, but he's excluded as a suspect as the I-70 strangler, specifically as a suspect in DeVoid Baker's murder. And I have some questions about that. I don't know what a 1983 polygraph would be like, but if this guy is living this life where this is the face I put out there, but then this is what I'm doing to young boys, I'm thinking that's the kind of guy who probably has it ingrained enough in his mind that he could pass a polygraph test. Oh, probably. And I, to be clear, I don't feel like this guy is the, I feel like he would be responsible for this one case. That That's sort of where I'm going with this. Like, I think that like, you know, one of the things that could be happening here is were it not for these sort of, if there are coincidences and circumstances, because, you know, 
Devoid Baker is found in Hamilton County. He's not the only one found in Hamilton County. He's the third body found out there that fits what we're seeing here. Right. Um, but do we have any idea what the credibility of the witness is, the other witness? I think it's another of the boys. I, I just I just wanted to point that out that like I, I think it's another boy and that's how I think they know Devoid. And if the forty so they said he got into the vehicle with an older man, right? Yeah. Okay, so if if the if one of the guy that um we're talking about is forty seven, right? Right. Well, how old's the older man? The oh that's exactly. So they're they're saying like so, two things here. One, he kind of fits the profile, right? Well, I mean, possibly, but this guy is—I don't feel like he's going to be responsible for anybody else. Yeah. Like literally, he had this encounter that he was actually charged for, right? Yeah. Um, he was charged with something, but the, like this dude is not the the killer. Like he he could be a killer, right? But um, it came from, and here's the thing. So Devoy Baker was strangled, and it is I don't know what was entailed in the polygraph, but if something went awry during an encounter, that guy could believe that he didn't, you know, actually kill him. This is true, yeah. Okay, and so all that leads me to think that this was an encounter that went wrong, right? And so there's no motive for, like, there's no intent to kill this kid. He was using him, like, you know, he was, well, it was child abuse, but it was in the course of, like, some sort of fantasy he was um, acting out on this child, and the, and he died from strang- strangulation, right? Yeah. And so I can see a lot of things adding up there where it's not a serial killer, um, it is a situation that went awry, which I believe would very easily allow someone to pass a polygraph, okay? Yeah. Um, depending on what was asked. Uh, another thing is polygraphs are, you know, they're completely subjective to the uh, technician's interpretation. You know, the indication that he got into the vehicle with someone else, that's interesting to me. I would need to have some more information. It's odd that this dude wouldn't testify for the grand jury. That's uh, my mind will never be changed about that. That's odd, right? Um, especially, I imagine I get where like he's having the secret life or whatever, but I imagine he would want to do everything he could to help the situation based on the circumstances. I mean, I guess it's possible he wouldn't want that. But to me, it's always strange when there's like, you know, somebody to point at and they don't get pointed at like quite enough or they rely on these sort of like antiquated subjective methods of eliminating them. Uh, Not to mention if it was another young boy that was the witness, there's no telling what transpired, Uh, you know, the possible power position he could have had over that kid. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying that there's a lot of things here that could have happened. Um, but I don't believe for a second that that dude, that particular guy would have been responsible for any of these other crimes, murders. Yeah. I, you know, so I went back and I pulled up different records on this just to see if I could find like, what I really wanted to know is like Duncan, uh, Patterson, if he was on a sex offender registry somewhere, I didn't, I don't find him anywhere. So I, you know, there's a couple of articles that mention him over time. Duncan Patterson originally comes out of Florida and I, I can't see how he really gets involved here and they don't consider him to be, what's the word I'm looking for? A viable suspect based on their own profile. That part's weird to me. So I submitted requests to Indiana and I submitted requests to Florida based on him being mentioned in a couple of articles. I have no record of Duncan Patterson where I can say this makes sense. It doesn't make sense. He's just one suspect in this. He's focused on Devoid Baker. 
in terms of like, that's how he's linked to all of this. But at the end of it all, I don't have like a good sense of if he had anything to do with it. There's another suspect that pops in here. Do you have anything else on Duncan Patterson? No. I like I haven't like I just don't have any way to like rule him in, rule him out. And like, there's just not much I can do with him. I think that's sort of the same thing. I can say like without question, he's not the I seventy strangler. Right, I agree with you. I I I just um, the only I could totally see some. I could see Devoid Baker being an outlier, except for the Hamilton County part. Since there's other bodies found there, in the back of my mind, I go, all right, well. What if he'd seen that in the paper and he knew if you chucked him out in Hamilton County, it would more than likely be connected to the other cases. I don't know. I could see him being an outlier. I could see him being part of it. It looks like they clear him and the, the authorities involved are comfortable clearing him. Uh, based on this, they clear him in 1982. That just sort of is what it is. It's terrible that uh, DeVoy Baker is in the middle of all this. Uh, and I do hope that his case is eventually solved, whether it's related or not. Now, they have this guy they bring up named August Cato. He gets detained in 1983. He's a resident of Carmel, Indiana. Uh, he goes by Gus, G-U-S. He gets released uh, because investigators found no evidence linking him to any of the crimes. Personally... I find it very strange that he gets mentioned at all. But where he gets mentioned is in 1990. So September 18, 1990, the Indianapolis News, they run an article. And it says, they actually run a couple articles here. Because um, we talked about some of this. Slangs of gay Hoosiers had been linked before. So where he specifically gets uh, mentioned is in an article about Daniel McNeedy and John Roach. We haven't got to this next part, but this is what the article says. This is not the first time police have linked some of nine men slain and left in rural Indiana and Ohio in the last 10 years. Investigators have hooked some of the slayings together and reported that some others were not linked. Monday, while not saying the deaths were the work of one killer, Ohio authorities described similarities in nine cases. So now we were talking about Indiana and the FBI. Now Ohio is chiming in. In May 1983, Indiana State Patrol found similarities in the deaths of Daniel McNeeby and John Roach. Details of McNeeby's death were not provided, but Roach had been found stabbed to death in December 1982. Although neither McNeevy nor Roach were listed by Ohio authorities Monday, which would have been September the 17th, 1990, when this was being talked about, uh, neither McNeevy nor Roach were listed by Ohio authorities on Monday, September the 17th. However, three months before linking Roach and McNeevy, state police had linked Roach's death with the slayings of Michael Petrie and Devoid Baker. So that puts him back on our pile for a minute meaning Devoid and Michael. In June of 1983, the deaths of two other men on the, on the list, Maurice Riley and Michael Andrew Taylor, were linked to the deaths of seven other Indianapolis men, which included McNeedy and Roach. Also in June of 1983, a state police investigator said McNeedy and Roach were killed by at least two independent killers. Later, police said the same person was responsible for killing Taylor, Petrie, and Riley, while someone else killed Baker. Other investigations have touched on similar killings. In July 1983, police agencies formed a task force to probe the killings of at least 15 male prostitutes whose bodies were found in Indiana and Illinois. So all these numbers are different than what we're talking about. And in 1983, August Gus Cato of Carmel was called to testify before a grand jury on the slayings of several men linked to the Indianapolis gay community, and state police failed to link Cato in any of the deaths. I believe Gus doesn't go into the grand jury. I think he might be the second guy, the older guy. Does that make sense? You see how I'm arriving at all of this? Doesn't he testify, though? I don't believe he does. And I don't... So, okay, August has passed away. And from what I can read about him, he has a pretty prolific life. Uh, he dies in June of 2019, okay? He was 95 years old in, in, in 2019. 
Right. So he was a faithful Catholic throughout his life. He was in the U.S. military. And he, he and his brothers, after he went to the military, they had formed the produce company. And they were known as the Banana Kings. He has a bit of a, a strange obituary. But his parents were Sicilian immigrants. He was married to Mary Cato. She died before him, but he had five kids with her, and he had 14 grandchildren. And he had a ton of great-grandchildren when he dies in 2019. I think he's the guy they can't link to anything because I honestly believe that he sort of bailed on the whole thing. Like, I think, I think he didn't participate, and they, they couldn't link him. So if he did it, we will never know. But, it like, he's, he still gets mentioned as a potential suspect all through the years. And, are you, so are you talking about uh, just sort of generalizing, like, if he's the I-70 killer? Yeah, what I'm, what I'm generalizing is, okay, he kind of matches some aspects of the profile, if that makes sense, but not really like he's obviously had sex enough to have these kids, which they were saying it'd be rare for them that like they were saying basically he wouldn't have had sex with his wife in the FBI profile. That doesn't have to be like a constant, but at least five times he did because he had children. Correct. Mm -hmm. If we put him, you know, in terms of age and time. So he's 95 when he dies. In 2019, which means he was born 1924, 1923. So, by the so if you just look at like 1983, saying when they're doing the profile, he's already 60 years old. Do you see what I mean? Um, yeah, I see that. Uh, that's significantly, I think that's what makes him the older guy at the library. So maybe he did like go and like have a thing or something that somebody saw. Right. But to me, if he is involved in, uh, in Devoid Baker's case, uh, I don't know, maybe I, cause in my, in my opinion, I don't know why I separate him out. What about time-wise? Was he like really far out outlier time-wise? What do you mean outlier time-wise? Was he like, uh, like, in if you're going to break this down into a period of time that all these victims uh, succumb to whoever killed them, is he like a lot sooner, a lot later, or is he like right in the middle like everybody else? Oh, okay. So, all right. Here's how that would run. Time-wise, we have Michael Petrie is, is June 1980. Maurice Taylor is July 1982. They're considered to be the first two victims recorded as official victims of the I-70 Strangler. The Void Baker is October 2nd of... 1982. And then, so he's the third victim in time. So he's a year and a couple months later. And then who's the next one? So Michael Riley, he is the one who disappears in May of 1983. And then Eric uh, Repker is May of 1985. Right. And so these are super different circumstances, right? In my opinion, yes. So the one thing I'll say about Gus Cato, regardless of what we read in the obituary, regardless of what we think, regardless of what happened with Devoid Baker's murder, is he the and you you've said this before when we were talking. You said that like grand jury stuff isn't news, and like a lot of times it's very technical. We we were able to find one reference to this online, and if there's some other reference and somebody wants to send it to me or point it to me, I'll be glad to correct myself. Gus Cato gets called before the grand jury about Devoid Baker's death. And based on his age, he does appear to be the older guy that is seen at the library, maybe, or something else has brought him in. Now, over the like from 1983 when this grand jury is going over into 1984, 
there are a series of actions that are kind of technical and boring that don't really get the media excited and uh, surrounding what happened to Devoid Baker. All right, so Gus Cato is subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury. Now, the way that the media reported it at the time was he refused to testify, and that's where they drop it. If you go look at the wiki on this, um, I even think that the it, uh, I think the wiki says something about it says he was called to testify. Yeah, it says he was called to testify. But somewhere in there, they talk about an older gentleman who is uh, brought in who refuses to testify. It's it's in the the area about Duncan Patterson. Um, but what we've discovered is that while Gus is a little old, something weird happens. And that is he gets held in contempt for refusing to testify. It looks like the trial court and the state in front of the grand jury about Devoid Baker's murder is trying to figure out some level of immunity. And the way that works is you have the right to not incriminate yourself. And Gus Baker gets called in. He's complying with a subpoena. They instruct him to answer questions. He answers his name, and then he doesn't want to talk about the rest of any of the questions that he's going to be asked. His position was that anything he answers upon his attorney's advice might tend to incriminate him. If you read this, he gets a fine and uh, 60 days in jail, and he's advised that he would have to testify before the grand jury is ordered. We don't know the outcome of that in terms of like what he said in terms of his testimony. Wouldn't you agree, though, the way that it's set up um, from the Court of Appeals order, it appears that he would have been an adjacent character in this case. Um, as opposed to like a main suspect. And the reason I say that is because in the appeals court opinion, it goes through and it talks about how he has been afforded the right against self-incrimination based on the immunity that he's been granted. And they go through and talk about how it only applies. Like you can't make an exclamation and then expect it to not be used against you. It has to be, with regard to the questions you're being asked, right? Correct. And so he, so they basically, the trial uh, court or whomever is overseeing the grand jury, uh, he gets called, subpoenaed in to testify. He, he won't testify. And then they do, they go through this process where, where basically what they're trying to do is secure information in a way that the person giving up the information is not going to be uh, deprived of their Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate themselves. And so how they do that is um, they have to testify to what they know, but it won't be used against them. Right. And so to me, I don't, and this may be why this case has never gone. I mean, the grand, to my knowledge, no case has ever been brought with regard to devoid Baker's, uh, murder that that's that's where i stand that's one of he's one of the reasons that like this case like sticks in my craw and so because of that i would say that the grand jury testimony went nowhere however i would also say that you're not going to want to give immunity to compel someone to testify uh because they've pled the fifth essentially if they're your main guy and so, you know, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he had information on somebody that he didn't want to give up. And, you know, what kind of relationship do you have to have with somebody for that to be the case? Um, I would say somebody close to him, right? Um, I just, I can't imagine, well, for one thing, I can't imagine this particular situation with all the appeal uh, the appeal being done, him being fined, and he was, uh, I know that his stay in county jail was uh, stayed until the appeal was uh, over, right? Yeah. But basically, he had to present himself to court, right, 
Yeah. Like you're going to be in jail. I think there was a time limit on it, but I don't see how it happened like this here. And then with Duncan, he was just like, I don't want to participate. Yeah. So look, here's what I'm wondering. And like, I'm going to just like run down the speculation rabbit hole for a second. The way they're arguing this appellate matter, they first argue that the evidence is insufficient to support the court's finding of direct contempt. And then he concedes a bunch of, his lawyers concede a bunch of stuff related to what constitutes direct contempt in, in Indiana at the time. And essentially he's in contempt. He, whether they mean to or not, his lawyers sort of admit we're in contempt, but there's a reason. So then the way that that rolls out is the, in this appellate brief is they basically say if a grand jury witness refuses to testify and invokes the Fifth Amendment, the trial judge may grant what's known as use immunity. Now, use immunity or derivative use immunity are two types of the three types of recognized immunities in Indiana. The first type of immunity is transactional immunity. So that means that the state can't criminally prosecute the witness for whatever they're talking about, which the witness is testifying to. That's the first type of immunity. The second type of immunity that may be granted to a witness in exchange for their testimony is use immunity, which you just started talking about. But that's where the testimony compelled with the witness, it can't be used at a subsequent criminal proceeding against that witness. And the third type of immunity that can be offered up to a witness in exchange for testimony is derivative use immunity. So that means that any evidence obtained as a result of that witness's compelled testimony by a judge cannot be used against him in a subsequent criminal prosecution. And there are different holdings for that. That's where this stands as of 1984 when the lawyer brings this before essentially the Indiana Supreme Court. The second challenge that they throw out is that the constitutionality of the statute as it's applied to target witnesses, meaning he's a targeted witness in a grand jury investigation, and he's saying it's, it's whether or not it's constitutional. So it says, our constitutions protect those accused of crimes from being compelled to testify against themselves. The privilege against self-incrimination is one of the most fundamental of our constitutional rights and has been jealously guarded by the judiciary. However, the privilege is not absolute and it must be balanced against the government's legitimate demands to compel citizens to testify. Then he also claims that uh, the witness would be left in substantially the same position as if he had properly exercised his privilege to remain silent depending on how all of these transactions go in court. So in moving on, it says that the Indiana statute does not leave a target witness in such a position that they can protect themselves against self-incrimination and is therefore unconstitutional as it's applied in this case. They're using this to argue against direct contempt. And it's, kind of, it's not a terrible argument. It's just not really what's happening. So the trial court granted use immunity for Gus in exchange for compelled testimony of the target. But my impression is he wanted transactional immunity. I don't know what he got out of this. I don't know how this ends because all we know is Devoid Baker is an unsolved murder attached to the I-70 Strangler. Does Go it ahead. say that he wanted transactional immunity? Well, it, it the, uh, the appellate document that we have in front of us. It basically says that conferred transactional immunity upon a witness who is undoubtedly coextensive with his Fifth Amendment privilege since the compelled testimony can never be used against the witness. So he wanted a different, like he's acting like he wanted a different kind of immunity than what they gave him. And he had a lawyer there to protect him. Yeah, I, I guess I just read it differently because uh, to me it, it really well. The, basically, what happened, based on what I'm seeing, it looks like the trial court said, "Whatever you say here will not be used against you in a criminal um, prosecution." So here's where I was going. This was my theory that I was going to tell you. I think they've got Gus in here because they're trying to suss out Duncan Patterson's story, and I think Gus confirms Duncan Patterson 
left to Void Baker at the library, if I'm reading all of this correctly, because Gus was the next customer. And Gus doesn't want to admit to that. That's one theory, is that it sort of rules Duncan Patterson out because Duncan Patterson leaves and, you know, the Void Baker is with Gus, potentially. Or I think they give him use immunity and they don't realize that what he's about to say is, yeah, that little boy said he was going to out me to my brothers that I'm in business with and I strangled him and I dropped him off where the other bodies were. And then they go, well, shit. That would have happened after this appellate order if Gus was made to testify to that and they had given him use immunity of his statement. They closed the case. But I think if that were the case and that second theory is right, I don't think we ever have Gus, because this continues on the 1991 and Gus gets on up in age, I don't think we have Devoid Baker attached to I-70 Strangler anymore. And I think officially, Devoid's case would be closed if that were the case. Well, whatever happened here, um, he was he he was forced by the uh, court of appeals to testify to the grand jury, and uh, we know that, like I said earlier, there's never been any action brought against anyone with regard to uh, Devoid Baker's uh, murder, right? Yeah. Okay, so. If, you know, under under those circumstances, whatever he testified to, if anything, it didn't lead to uh, a perpetrator being brought or attempted to be to be being brought to justice through the grand jury process. Right. Right. And, and so I have to say this is a lot um, to go through. Yes. For somebody to just not test, to not want to testify before a grand jury. And then I feel like the part that we sort of, it may have been in the wiki uh, where it said like, oh, he declined to participate in the grand jury proceedings. Right. Um, Right. I feel like that might be a little bit of an oversight because I don't, it doesn't sound to me like they were just letting everybody decline. Right. Um, well, I think he was – I think essentially they were trying to get people to back that story up because they thought Duncan was potentially Devoy Baker's killer. And I think where this leaves us, if if I'm not misunderstanding this, I think that that while they say they, quote, ruled him out with the polygraph and he's officially excluded as a suspect, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think that somewhere in this mix, there are probably a couple of other people that came into this grand jury. And if you were to look real hard at, like, if you could get that, most grand jury things are uninteresting to the media, one. But then, two, it, they they largely take place in secret. The fact that we know this much is only gonna, because of. I was going to say, I don't think that they're uninteresting to the media. They're actually really fascinating. It's just that they're secret. Right. Um, and this, the only reason we have this is a ruling was made to, for a witness to be held in contempt and that attor- the attorney for that witness that was being held in contempt appealed it to, it, this is actually coming from the Supreme Court of Indiana. Yeah, yeah, this is a big deal. All the justices agree on this. They basically tell Gus that he's got to comply with whatever the grand jury wants. Right, because essentially what is being said here, regardless of what kind of immunity he's granted, he is essentially, they're saying that, like, it. no matter what you say, uh, you're not going to get in trouble for it. Correct. And, and so they kind of close this appellate document out by talking about previous rulings and the quote for the end of it is uh talking about the burden of proof and like like what would happen and they basically say the appellate would might have fared better had he testified under the use immunity granted and thus placed the heavy duty of proof upon the state at any later prosecution to show that evidence presented against them had an independent source and they find that the appellate chose the more certain route to penalty of contempt. All the justices agree. They all affirm this. And we know that if you go looking for Gus, 
Nothing seems to have happened to him. I can't find any criminal records for him. I can't find anything that really tainted him. In fact, like even uh, the obituary seems like he may have had a secret life, but he also had a very forward, public-facing good life. Um, and this was only um, with regard to DeVoy Baker. Correct. This is only a case uh, brought before the grand jury investigating the, the death of uh, DeVoy Baker, which is which is interesting and brings me like to the next part of things. Do you have anything else on Gus? Do you rule him out or rule him in? I feel like this is like a sort of a huge question mark over this entire series of cases because depending on what the outcome of the secret grand jury proceeding was, you know, aside from the fact that like no charges were brought, if prosecutors put on the entire case and the testimony reflected what happened and immunity had been granted to whomever, that could very well be why the case has never been solved. Yes, it could be. And how about, how about I give you a serial killer confessing to a bunch of this shit and it confuses it even further? What if we do that for the next episode? Sure. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure 
today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code True Crime Excess for twenty percent off your order. That's T R U E C R I M E Excess. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you twenty percent off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, at Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. 
We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.